Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Slacktivist Action Group, Episode 3. Well done for turning up in the middle of winter. Because as we know, winter is shit, isn't it? You get on public transport now, it's coughs and sneezes everywhere. For frail pensioners deciding who to sit next to, it's like a game of Russian roulette, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? And people like madness decide, don't they? They decide to go and get fit in January. Some of them sign up to do a marathon. What a mistake that is. I did a marathon. I lost both big toenails and the tops of both nipples through chafing. All because some idiot in 500 BC had decided to run 26 miles to tell the people of Athens that they'd won a battle. Now, if you've won a battle in 500 BC capturing chariots and horses and you need to go 26 miles, surely you take a chariot and a frickin' horse. What you don't do is run it yourself, do you? Because he ran it himself, didn't he? He ran it himself, told them they won the battle, and then he dropped down dead. Well, how come we've made an Olympic event out of that, then? Some idiot run 26 miles, dropped down dead. All right, let's get everybody doing that for charity dressed as Peppa Pig. There's an idea. And sometimes when they televise the marathon, don't they? Right? Somebody does actually die and everybody's shocked. Why are people shocked? The bloke who invented it died. Phidippides was an unmitigated arsehole. A phrase I don't think we hear often enough. And obviously we try and keep healthy, don't we? Yeah? But winter vegetables, they're shit as well, aren't they? Purple sprouting broccoli. Cabbage, Brussels sprouts, curly kale. The dietary equivalent of a wet fart. <laughs> Broccoli should not be purple.
cabbage even makes rabbits have diarrhoea. Brussels sprouts are cabbage for midgets. And curly kale is cabbage with leprosy. The only thing to be done with winter vegetables is to be liquidised into soup. Not to eat them, to punish them, ladies and gentlemen, and then chuck them away. If you do decide to do any active exercise, my recommendation, go on a heated canal barge. The most relaxing thing I have ever done because the maximum speed on a canal barge, four miles an hour. The bloke who I hired my barge off, I said, is it okay if we drink? He said, you'd be mad not to. <laughs> he said, you can see an accident coming half an hour away. <laughs> so what we need to do as the Slackton Action Group, we need to pull together in these difficult winter times. I had a lovely human experience recently. I was in a supermarket in a bit of a rush I only had three items, three small items, and the lad was there and he scanned the first two items. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant, I'm going to get to wherever I need to get to. And then the, the third item, he couldn't get it to scan. And there was a queue forming up and I thought, oh, he's going to call the supervisor, I'm going to be here for ages. This is a disaster. And then to his eternal credit, right, he tried to scan it one more time. It wouldn't scan, he shrugged his shoulders, went beep himself, and he chucked it through. <laughs> So before we get going, ladies and gentlemen, we have one point of business to do. We need to elect a secretary for tonight. Now, before you get worried that you're going to have to do too much, it's a very simple job. It's just a job for an hour, OK? All you need to do, right, for those people who've got some sort of difficulty remembering what's gone on, you'll be recapping the evening for us. Now, the person we had to do it last time, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, they got volunteered because it was their birthday but they recollected an incredible amount. Some stuff most of us were convinced hadn't happened. That's how good at recollecting they were. So let's have a little look, see if there's any hands going up at all. Um, it, oh, lovely. Thank you very much. And what's your name, madam? Liz. Thank you very much. We have Liz, ladies and gentlemen. Big round of applause for Liz down here. Super skills there. I just saw a little nudge from the person next to you there, Liz. That's it, you do it, and you, you very kindly said yes. So Liz, Liz is in control of the secretary. We look forward to hearing from Liz at the end of the show. Before that, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our three guests tonight. Would you please welcome ex-trade and industry minister Peter Lilly, Guardian columnist Deborah Orr, and author, comedian, journalist, and doctor, Dr. Phil Hammond, ladies and gentlemen. Big round of applause, please. Super. Well, welcome all. We're going to start with talking about the health service, mainly because there was due to be a junior doctor strike tomorrow, I believe, Phil. They've, yeah. they've, they've stopped, stopped that one for the time being to continue with their negotiations with Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary. It's got me rhyming slang, I think you'll find that. Yes, as I believe James Naughty found out to his cost on the, uh, on the Today Show. But... Um, Jeremy Hunt has said that he will impose a contract, I believe, if negotiations fail. So uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what the extent of the negotiations are for the contract, whether it's the, the size of the font or, or what, what is being decided at the moment. I Phil. think it's hard to know. You never know what the hidden agenda is. It could be that Jeremy Hunt is sizing himself up for a pop at the party leadership, so he decided to, to dangle his balls over the balcony of the British Medical Association and has been slightly surprised by the strength at which junior doctors have squeezed them. Um, <laughs> 
I think, I think what's interesting is that, I mean, junior doctors, to be honest, as nurses, as patients, as carers, they're the best smoke alarms we have for the state of the NHS. So the front line of the NHS will tell you how much pressure it's under, what it can reasonably do. Uh, and before the Tories came to the election, I think they thought it was going to be a hung parliament, so they made lots of silly pledges like, I guarantee everyone over 75 can see a GP on the same day. Right, guarantee a seven-day NHS. And I think they were hoping there would be a coalition and they could ditch some of the impossible pledges, particularly impossible with flatline funding. We've had flatline funding in the NHS, or will have for 10 years, huge cuts in social care, and they're trying to make £22 billion worth of savings on top of another £20 billion worth of savings. So it's a complete nonsense, the idea that you could safely extend routine services to seven days. Everyone knows it's bollocks, but they won the election <laughs> and now they have to somehow try to fulfil those pledges. The, the problem for Jeremy Hunt is he's been called on it because he's uh, he's shown a very poor grasp of evidence-based medicine there was a lovely protest recently where somebody there's a great book called how to read a paper essentially how to read uh, a scientific paper and they basically if you don't understand evidence-based medicine and you practice bad science you kill people and jeremy has been doing that thing that politicians do which is spinning the evidence and drawing completely the wrong conclusions on weekend mortality or stroke care or whatever and junior doctors spend their lives appraising evidence that's what they do and they're saying this is bollocks we don't trust the person at the top of this organization who's talking bollocks therefore we don't trust the negotiations we what, think we're being stitched so, up what, i mean jeremy hunt identified what he called the weekend effect hmm. which was essentially that uh, 15 percent more people were likely to die at the weekend if you went in at the mm. weekend. So then they've now identified what they're calling the Jeremy Hunt effect, yeah. which is where people are avoiding going in at the weekend, supposedly. Well, the oh. idea being that people are now, they've heard that it's more likely huh. to die, so they're, they're well, basically trying to avoid that's true. as that's much that's as they can. People have said, I've, had a heart. I've got central crushing chest pain going down my left arm. But it's a Saturday, so I think I'll sit at home with that. And they've come a cropper because they've, they're worried about going in at the weekend. Well, and if but it is interesting uh, that things change. It So the weekend effect basically is between Friday and Monday, so it's not just the weekend. There are some stages of the weekend where it appears you're safer to be in hospital than outside hospital. And it could be to do the fact that sicker pe people are sicker at the weekends. There could be all sorts of variations we don't know. So you can't actually say this is just because of not enough junior doctors. It's certainly true that there are safe staffing levels you need on the NHS, and the government deliberately su su suppressed the safe uh, staffing guidance from NICE and have been forced to publish it under a Freedom of Information request. And what junior doctors say, it's not just us, we need more nurses, we need more technicians, we need more x-ray, we need more diagnostics. If you want a safe extended seven-day NHS, that's what you need, and it's going to cost you money. You simply can't do it on a flatline budget. And they're right. And, uh, I'd love the idea, though, that you know anybody who's going up on the roof for checking the TV aerial yeah. now doing it on a Wednesday rather than a Saturday, yeah. so <laughs> just to make sure that they. But, but, but go on, you go. I kicked off as a junior doctor activist. I was in a double act called Struck Off and Die back in 1990, and we were probably the only. You remember that? We were the only two, two junior doctors brave enough to put our names to any protest. The only we mustn't say that. That's terrible. And we didn't really know what we were protesting for. I can remember outside the Tory conference, we had a protest, and we went, "What do we want? We're not sure. What do we want it? Whenever you tell us." <laughs> <laughs> these junior doctors are incredibly brave. They're all putting their names to stuff. There are, you know, 53,000 junior doctors, probably 35,000 members of the BMA. Jeremy Hunt has been the best recruiting sergeant for the BMA they've ever had. Um, and they're actually passionate, but they're brave. You know, what the NHS needs is whistleblowers who are prepared to speak honestly about what they think, speak the truth to power, and they're doing it. And I really salute them. I've got my Vivian Westwood Support the Junior Doctors T-shirt. I think they're fantastic. They inspire me. And, when, you know, obviously there's... A lot of problems, apparently, a lot of junior doctors so pissed off that they're leaving the profession. Mm. A lot of them off to Australia, supposedly, work less long, get more money. 
And if they go to the right place in Australia, when they go and visit the patients, they get their own plane as well. So it's a, it's a win-win all the way. It is, but actually, I think you'll find most junior doctors are wedded to the values of the NHS. The beauty of the NHS and why we need to fight so hard to keep it is it's what binds us together as a compassionate society. We all pull our money into the centre and we treat people according to need. So the people like you who earn a lot of money put a lot of money in there and the people who need the NHS the most often pay... <laughs> exactly. It's like Prescott and his two jags. <laughs> <laughs> so the beauty of the NHS is the people who pay for it most often need it the least, and they pay for the care of people in society who need it most. So every day you stay well enough not to need the NHS, somebody else benefits. It's a wonderful collaborative effort. And if we lose that, if the whole junior doctor thing is to take away working terms and conditions to soften us up for some sort of sell-off where we all end up on an insurance system, I think our society would be much the we, uh, poorer for it because we need that central compassion in healthcare. And what at the moment supposedly... NHS spending loads of money on agency staff because yeah. a lot of people they're short staffed in all areas and so people are able to make more money as temporary staff going to the agency than they were as part of the NHS and yeah. I mean that's a disaster isn't it people going well I've, I've just been offered a full time job on the NHS all unlucky how are you yeah. going to be able to cope you know, it doesn't seem to make, uh, make much sense to be getting more money. It is, but there are some people who do agency working because they find frontline, full-time NHS incredibly stressful, and that's the issue. I once stood against William Waldegrave in the 1992 general election. Tony and I, the Struck Off and Died Junior Doctors Alliance, or Sodger, we were called, <laughs> and we hired an ice cream van and we drove it around the streets of Bristol West shouting, What do we want? Willie out! When do we want it? Now! Willie, Willie, Willie! Out, out, out! Uh, we got 87 votes. Um, <laughs> he got 27,865. But because we'd paid our deposit, we were allowed to make a speech. And I said, quite simply, if you want a better health service, you have to look after the people working in it. If all you did was improve the mental health of the front line of the NHS, then patients would benefit. If you want to know whether your local hospital is safe, you don't have to read a whole load of... Uh, Care Quality Commission reports, you just look at the staff survey. If the staff survey says, I like my hospital, I'm happy for my own mum to be treated in there, it'll be providing a good service. So I would have a B-Day revolution in the NHS from the bottom up, and I'd start by making the working conditions humane and safe. I'd value and inspire the frontline staff rather than pissing them off. The last thing we need is some macho tit of a health secretary who can't, seems capable of in telling the truth and spins the evidence. He needs to collaborate with them for a better NHS, not piss them off. And, well, at the moment, obviously, uh, one of the things that junior doctors are very unhappy about is the fact that these financial penalties for hospitals are going to be taken away. So the yeah. junior doctors are worried that they're going to have to work longer hours. Well, everything's about money. So when I, when I was a junior doctor... Uh, uh, and all the senior doctors, when I complained, they used to say, well, we had to do it and so should you. It's the only way to learn. And they were all slightly jaundiced, lonely, alcoholic, divorced bigots. And <laughs> What's interesting about this current crop is that all the consultants are supporting us. So Jeremy had amazingly this amazing trick of uniting the entire profession. But part of the issue is that unless you have a pecuniary incentive to stop abuse of hours, it won't happen. So when I trained, you were paid a third for your overtime. Okay, Not time and a third, a third. So it was much cheaper to make me work 120 hours a week than it was to make three doctors work 40 hours a week. So unless you have a financial disincentive to abuse the staff, then trusts who have to make £22 billion worth of savings will force them to work unsafe working conditions. So you need that financial penalty. And the government are thinking about taking it away and then you'd have to go to a, a trust guardian who would then decide whether it had happened or not. And that's but not safe. I mean, you know, junior doctors... 
regularly working 14-hour shifts. I mean, that, that seems a disaster, doesn't it? If you, if you were in a restaurant and you had a waiter who was, like, yawning and dropping knives, you'd be pretty pissed off. If that turns out to be your surgeon, you're livid, yeah. aren't you? I mean, it is a safety-critical end. There was great... When I... We, we were campaigning, there was a lovely bloke called Chris Johnson who was a junior doctor at Bloom, in Bloomsbury, and uh, he fell asleep, hit the wall after an obstetric shift and decided to sue Bloomsbury Health Authority. So we put a portable brainwave monitor on his head while he was doing his obstetric shifts, and he was found to be technically firing off sleep waves while he was repairing women after labour, sewing up episiotomies. Junior doctors fall asleep on the job when they're knackered. It's unsafe. You, and that's what... That's you, ultimate... you, don't want, you don't want to be there coming around for an operation and find the doctor no. asleep next to you in the bed, do you? That's going to be... But the old days, when Tony, when I first trained, if you cocked up, you made a mistake, you burnt the notes, you buried the x-rays, you laughed it off in the mess, and you hid it. <laughs> now we have this slightly awkward thing called the duty of candour. So if we cock up, we're supposed to tell people the truth. So... Although we probably work longer hours than junior doctors today, A, they've got far more technology to deal with, and they've got the ethics of having to tell patients the truth, whereas in the past we used to bury this stuff and it took a very brave whistleblower or patient campaigner to unearth it. So if you're going to tell the truth, which is what junior doctors now, they're saying, look, our work conditions aren't safe, don't make them less safe. Okay. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, I think this is a perfect opportunity for you to come um, here, Peter. Uh, I, thought, I thought you were going to maybe step in slightly sooner, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, he is a macho tit, though, isn't he, Jeremy? I, I, Let's I be honest. I, I, pardon? He is a bit of a macho tit, isn't he? No, he's not. He's is he not? Actually, the most soft-spoken, gentle, un-macho uh, uh, member of power I think of. But really, uh, yes. Let's be just fact, uh, At present, doctors are allowed to work up to ninety-one hours. Mm. He's going to reduce that by twenty hours. Are you in favour of keeping it at ninety-one hours? Well, that's if you trust. What happens? No, no is, just answer the question. If it could be legally enforced, yes. At the moment, doctors you, you do. You would keep it at the present level if it could be legally enforced. No, if, if, it can improve, if its improvements are actually going to, to pass muster, then some of them aren't actually a bad idea. The trouble is that junior doctors have been screwed up in the past so badly, the previous government mucked up their medical training. They don't trust authorities to be able to introduce safe contracts. They think they'll be stitched up. They won't be possibly thought through. They'll be done on the hoof. And some of the So it's a better contract, but they're afraid it won't be enforced. No, I think... It's not a better contract. Well, no, 70 there are hours is better than... No, because it's not it, just about the it, hours. It's it, about you're, you're taking one example, though, Peter. Yeah. From It's 91 down to 72. So the absolute maximum. But even 72 is too many, isn't it? Because well, 40, maybe, 40, but, but 40, my, my friend over here wants to keep it at 91. Oh, no, I, no, I don't want to change it until... The junior so you doctors do you want have... to keep it at 91 no, until listen, something else Listen happens. to me. I don't oh, want to change oh, it. I until the junior doctors have analysed it and said, we're the people who have to work this, they're incredibly intelligent people. Until we feel this is a safer contract, we're not going to accept it. You're right, most people... I mean, people could work all sorts of hours because if you're a junior obstetrician and premature twins come in and your colleague's off sick, you will work 90-odd hours because you have to because there's no-one else to do the job. So the overworking will happen whatever the contract is there... But these incredibly intelligent, insightful people, the junior doctors themselves, analysing the contract, will look at it and say, if I think this contract is less safe than the one I have at the moment, I'm not going to do it. And I trust 53,000 of them far more than I trust Jeremy Hunt. Well, I, I would certainly trust them. If the odd thing is, although I have one of the highest post bags in the country, I haven't yet received a single letter from a junior doctor. I receive them from their relatives, friends, probably and so on. Probably too busy to write. Pardon? Probably too busy to <laughs> even write. On, even on the strike days. And my my guess is you may be getting a few now. <laughs> well, I hope so. I want to. I've encouraged it. I've met somebody who's going off to the, uh, to the uh, strike picket line and said, please tell them to write to me. Because I get letters from their relatives, and I write back and say, if that's what your um, son or whatever has told me, told you, uh, this is what I've been told, tell me where it's wrong. 
and I haven't had a single reply. And is, am I right in thinking, Phil, that it's not just the specifics of the contract, it's also a general feeling in the way that the, the NHS is heading as well? Well, if you go on the marches, and I've been on a few NHS marches, there is a gathering of the clans. So there are people who passionately believe the NHS is being sold off. For example, I work in paediatric chronic fatigue services and our local paediatric community services have been sold off to Virgin. So they're running the entire, they're doing child protection, they're doing this incredibly complex stuff and people are saying, are Virgin the right company to do this? Do we know? So there are lots of people who go on these marches and saying, look, junior doctors, you're being sold down the river, they're giving you an easier contract that makes it easier to sell you off to a big corporate chain. So you get all sorts of people gathering at well, these marches. And Lockheed Martin are now yeah. you know, going for NHS services. People and who I, make arms I mean, the reason, doesn't seem to be quite... One of the reasons the government is having such difficulty is, of course, that Cameron said he promised there'd be no major top-down reorganisation of the NHS, and then they introduced the largest reorganisation in history. David Nicholson, the chief executive of NHS England, said it was so big you could see it from space. Jeremy Hunt doesn't even talk about it now. It's sort of hidden what Lansley did. But that completely destroyed the trust between the front line and the government because they promised this and then delivered the complete opposite. And that's why they don't really trust them. Peter's right. Ultimately, it has to be talked out, not striked out. Ultimately, mature people have to get round the table and talk it through, and it has to be negotiated. But, uh, but, but also, when it comes to things that obviously can't be a perfect market, the whole idea that the private sector can do it more cheaply, surely that one look at the trains will tell you that, that that is not an easy scenario, is it? Given that we subsidise them four times as much, supposedly, now. It was Labour who introduced uh, market competition into the NHS. They actually had GPs in supermarkets in Bristol. They had a separate checkout for six symptoms or less. Uh, <laughs> unless you shopped in Waitrose where it was six symptoms or fewer. Um, <laughs> But Andrew Lousy argued all I'm doing is building on the reforms of Tony Blair. When Simon Stevens, the current chief executive of NHS England, was Tony Blair's advisor, he said the NHS needs the constructive discomfort of market competition. I would argue what the NHS actually needs is collaboration because health and social care are so complex you need mature people working together. But Uh, in my constituency, Tony Blair set up a surgery centre. It wasn't to introduce competition, it was to introduce the private sector. It was privately run, but it had a monopoly of all the um, surgical cases in it. It was an absolute disaster. And so all three Conservative MPs in the area said, you've got to bring it back in the NHS. So it's been brought back in the NHS. But it was Tony Blair who set it up in the most stupid way, because it didn't bring any competition at all, just brought immense complexity, and asked that brought it back. Uh, you won't ever hear that, of course, that the government's been bringing back some of Tony Blair's private things into the public sector. Uh, because for some reason you never hear these facts. Well, the first thing, I mean, the biggest privatisation we've had in the NHS, the biggest experiment was PFI, which is otherwise known as paying for it indefinitely. Uh, We're paying 10 to 12, in some cases, 14 times the build cost of a hospital. So we decided we wanted to keep building off the balance sheet, so we'll farm it out to the private sector under PFI schemes. And some of the deals, a lot of them done under labour, were absolutely appalling, so hospitals are completely crippled. So it's not just about whether the private sector does it, it's whether people have the nous and expertise to negotiate the best deals and, and who people should be doing this. And we've had trouble... The, the issue with the private sector is they need to make a 5% profit. So Circle or whoever it is, every time they can't make a 5% profit, they say, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to pull out. And that leaves a huge gap in the provision of services. So, so on that positive note... Yeah. Um, We'll, uh, we'll move on to Deborah. You wanted to talk a little bit about the legalisation. You wrote a very fine column last week in The Guardian about we needed to get drugs out of the hands of gangs and one way of doing that, we should at least make a start trying to get some of the less harmful drugs into off-licences or into their own licence premises and tax them properly along with alcohol and cigarettes and what have you. Yes, I did see that. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I could just read the article, but I was hoping that you might you might embellish it for us. Uh, not really. Um, in an audience, <laughs> with an audience like this, I mean, I think most people will have tried drugs. Um, <laughs> Can we have a show of hands? Have a show of hands. How many people here have tried drugs? No. No. <laughs> 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 You're tremendously uh, unrepresentative. Are, are, are we talking about now or whether, you know, this evening or what? what? During, during a lifetime. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you know, Colorado have recently legalised. Uh, are you still counting how many people I've got are on one, drugs? I've got one. <laughs> Give them the microphone. Some of them have got so much short-term memory loss, they're only just putting their hands up now. By the looks of it, this gentleman once had a pop tart. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, obviously, Colorado. I mean, it, it's got strict laws in terms of you know where you can buy it, what you can do with it. You obviously can't you can't drive um, if you're taking marijuana. Obviously, if you go to Amsterdam, why everybody uses a bicycle. But the, the, it's wor- it seems to be working in Colorado at the moment. Well, lo- lots of well, lots of states in America have now um, rolled back on the war on drugs, as far as cannabis is concerned. Um, I mean, I think the worrying thing about drugs. When I was young, uh, I took lots of recreational drugs and had a really great time, and didn't really care about. Legalization. It was quite glamorous, actually. They were legal, and you went to your dealer, and you sort of got on the phone and sort of said, have you got any blackberries in at the moment? You know, oh, well, have you got any red currants? And it was all quite exciting that it was illegal, and oh, here are the cops. And a lot of vitamin C, by the sounds of it. (laughs) (laughs) One of your five portions. (laughs) That was very much the drug dealer's idea of what a great code would be. Like it was like black and lab and all of that, you know, for 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 different kinds of dope. Now you only get skunk really now because you know, lots of people will talk about how you know when we were young and we took dope, you know, we were smoking lovely, you know, hayman dope. But nowadays it's really quite sort of aggressive and you know much more dangerous. And that's of course because. It's illegal, you know, because, if you, you know, a great big brick of drugs that, you know, can get 50 people stoned compared to this tiny little, you know, plant nodule of I'm, dope that can get 100 people stoned is, is much well, better to, just the gangs, to, 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 you know, distribute illegally. So, you know, it, it becomes much more dangerous and... You know, much more compact the but longer it stays some illegal. Some cannabis coming from the Taliban. Apparently, there was a, the story, wasn't there, where the uh, the Canadian soldiers they they were the Taliban were supposedly hiding out in their ten foot high cannabis fields, and the Canadian soldiers were trying to find them. So they decided to smoke them out, uh, and then the Canadian <laughs> soldiers were suffering oh, the friends. after effects afterwards. Well, it was the same thing with Afghanistan. You know, at, at the time of the huge, you know, we're going to sort of bomb Afghanistan into the 21st century, this is going to be great and everybody's going to be liberated. If they'd at that time said, you know, we're going to make Afghanistan the pharmaceutical morphine capital of the world and set them up with this great 21st industry, century industry with, with customers around the world, because all health services need morphine, then... The fortunes of Afghanistan might have been quite different, but, but this because you know uh, the the war on drugs says that you know 
allowing peasants to grow heroin is wrong. Um, none of those ideas are even discussed. So I think the, 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 one of the sad things about it is that silly decisions are made because there's, there's, there's no discussion about any of it at all. The other thing um, that I wanted to say was I didn't really care about drugs becoming uh, being legalised while I was young. Now I'm a parent, um, I am able to say to my own children, talk to me before you use any drugs. But for other kids who can't say to that, that to their parents, they're going off, they're hiding it, they might get some drugs, they take it to a place that they think is safe, that is actually an unsafe place. There was the, you know, the, the, the child in Brighton recently who got the acid and thought the safe place to take it was out in the open and, and fell off the cliff. Um, so young people are the people who mostly take drugs. They start experimenting in their teams and then and they've got to go and find criminals to buy them. So they're they're giving their pocket money, you know, to international drug rings. Um and then they're going off uh without any instructions to do something that um if it goes wrong, they're not going to call the police, they're not going to go to the doctor, they're not going to talk to their parents because they're doing this very wrong thing. But so it's is, like danger the, on danger on danger on danger. But this is not the direction that the, the government are going. They are introducing the psychoactive drugs law in April, which is the idea of making all legal highs some sort of catch-all for legal highs. Because at the moment, legal highs... You know, to, to remain legal, they have to put on not fit for human consumption and what, sell them as air freshener or pond cleaner or whatever it is. Well, I think a lot of it is... Um, I mean, I just wish they would sort of think at least a little bit about safe spaces for drugs. I mean, for example, ecstasy, which is not particularly... I mean, most people will say that they would like cannabis. About 39% of the population in Britain at the moment want cannabis legalised. Far fewer people want ecstasy legalised. But I think you've got to kind of look at the nature of the drug a bit. It's the same with these legal highs um, and poppers as well. These are all drugs that people want to take in a particular context. They want to take them in a nightclub. So it seems to me that, you know, licensing nightclubs to sell these drugs and you've got to take them on the premises and you've got to have, you know, and, and you're in a safe space to, to take the drugs just seems... Well, we, we did have a Much Conservative MP, I believe, uh, th this week saying that he... he well, he a Conservative MP some while back wrote a pamphlet um, arguing for the legalisation of drugs. I, I do believe so, but we had Crispin Blunt saying that he, he took poppers, didn't he? And there was a committee of MPs who said they didn't think poppers were particularly harmful. Doctors supposedly don't think uh, poppers are particularly harmful, and they do have some health benefits, because uh, supposedly uh, for anal sex they, they relax your anus. With, with not, not the sort of oh. information you get on no radio need to for be that, I think we all know that. <laughs> was that in your pamphlet, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a life. It was in the small print on the bottom of page four. <laughs> but no, people, not a lot of people know that you, you have a history of uh, suggesting that marijuana should be legalised. Uh, yeah, well, when I was on the front bench, the uh, naughty media went to all the ministers and shadow ministers and asked them whether they'd ever had cannabis, or yeah, cannabis in particular. And I was almost the only one who'd never smoked cannabis and therefore I had a clear enough head to be able to work out that it was madness to try and uh, prevent uh, people trying to buy it. Because, as you were saying, it drives uh, soft drug users into the arms of hard drug pushers. And they'll then try and upgrade people from taking cannabis to hard and more dangerous drugs. So the first step, we should 
legalised. Legal so, outlets for cannabis. So for those, the, the psychoactive drugs law, it's been tried in Ireland. Apparently more young people are now taking what used to be legal highs now that they've become illegal. I don't know, maybe it seems more sexy if it, it's illegal. If, it, if you think that it's legal, you think it's got to be a bit tame and, you know, people going, it's not even going to clean out my pond, I don't think. This one... Yeah. <laughs> What, what is your position on, on well, the psychoactive uh, I mean, drugs law? It, it, the, it, the law empowers the government to make any psychoactive uh, drug illegal if the relevant committee says it's dangerous. So it, it saves going through a whole lot of process that you have to now. And I can see that chemists being very uh, creative, people are bringing constant new drugs, and some of them may be physically dangerous for you. It's important that there be a reasonably rapid way of classifying them as dangerous at the moment, though, it seems like nobody can quite agree what psychoactive is, no. and that it's, it's a, people saying, well, you know, they're going to accept coffee, there'll be an exception for alcohol, and then they were going, well, it could be a bunch of roses, could be nutmeg, could be incense, could be links aftershave. Yeah. <laughs> All of these possible things that you think the, the list of exceptions is going to be so long, it's going to be unworkable. Well, a few of them are exempt straight off yeah. because they thought it would be a bit embarrassing to have alcohol on the list, <laughs> yeah. uh, not least in places like this, but... Um, it, it is to. I'm, a, you know, I'm not exactly enthusiastic about this law. I have to say, right. and come the final day, I might find myself absent. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you could invite the, me the back demo, on the, the democratic evening. bastion, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so, what, a, what's the doctor's? What's the doctor's? Well, viewpoint? the first thing is actually to. If you know what you're taking, is to understand the risks of that. There's a wonderful book written by David Nutt, who is the uh, scientist who was kicked off the government's advisory committee by pointing out that uh, ecstasy was less dangerous than horse riding. Um, <laughs> and he does this really... In- there are some really interesting comparisons. So know about the fact... If you know what you're taking, then you can work out the facts, you can find out the safe way to take it, etc., etc. There are global impacts. To make one gram of cocaine, I think they cut down four hectares of rainforest or something. So there are huge environmental impacts from the drug trade, as well as all the other things. But there's the harm of what you're putting in your body. And the fear I always have with my kids is they don't know what they're dropping. If you're given a tablet of who knows what, you've got no idea what you're taking. So you can't really make an informed choice because you don't know what's in it. So one benefit of legislation would people would be knowing what they're taking in view of form and in what dose. And it would cut out all those additional criminal harms that Deborah articulated so well. But then you think, what sort of society are we doing? I think I'd do it bit by bit. I'd start off with the cannabis... I wouldn't do it all in one go, saying, let's have a free-fall and it's all decriminalised. Let's start with cannabis and see how we go. And then, as you say, that point about maybe you can have some drugs in certain environments and see how we go there. Okay, Um, well, look, I wouldn't suddenly say, oh, let's try them all, uh, because only doctors are allowed to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I have got my black bag on me. um, (laughs) Anyone wants to see me afterwards? I'm talking about doctors. We can cut that bit out, actually, can't we? (laughs) (laughs) Is anyone here from the General Medical Council? I just want to check. If I can make one medical point about it, though, it's that... Um, when something goes wrong, people are afraid to call nine 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 because That's they don't want point. to. They don't want to, and, and even if they do call nine nine nine, they don't want to stay around because they think the police will come. Yes. They don't want to say what the other person has taken because that will implicate them as well. I'd really like if we can't even if we can't legalise drugs tonight. I would <laughs> like us. I would like us at least to. Make it absolutely clear that if you call 999 because someone is, is in trouble with an overdose or has <coughs> taken a wobbly over drugs, that you won't be prosecuted for drugs after you've called 999. I'd like to start with that at that's, least. That's absolutely vital. And I mean, it's, it's that issue of confidentiality. In the emerging department, there's nothing worse when time is of the essence of people being too frightened to say what somebody's taken. 
Uh, and people need to understand confidentiality means that your personal information will be protected and they weren't going to hand it over to the police. OK, well, let's move, move on to Peter. Um, uh-huh. you're, uh, you were very keen to talk about climate change, Peter. I believe you, you'd be known as something of a sceptic. I believe the, the, the current term is lukewarmer. I believe. Yes. God, it's hot. It? It is hot. <laughs> so, uh, the warmest January on record is a good time to come in and talk about climate change. <laughs> you have so, to take your top So, off. You, you, you're worried about climate alarmism. You're somewhat alarmed by it, I understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm a scientist by training, so I don't dispute that if you double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, you'll increase the temperature of the um, surface of the Earth by about one degree. That's certain. What's uncertain is whether that will lead to any uh, multiplier effects or any offsetting effects. So, we don't know quite how much warming there'll be. My view is lukewarm, probably not a great deal. But we've, in this country, committed ourselves to cut emissions of CO2 by 80% by uh, 2050. No other country in the world has done that. And that's led to us to a very perverse situation. Because whereas at this Paris Agreement, all the countries of the world said, we'll cut it by whatever amount they chose to promise... In the case of Europe, Europe put in a total amount that all Europe was going to cut emissions by. And now they're allocating it to the different countries. But because we're committed to reducing our emissions at twice the rate of the rest of Europe as a whole, all the effect of us doing so is that other countries will have to reduce their emissions by less. And so we'll have put twice as much burden on our industry, on our households, and the net result, well, we, we haven't reduced emissions into the atmosphere by a single molecule. But this, this, that seems to me daft. This, this Paris Agreement, everybody's going to, you know, 196 countries, all of the countries in the world have come together for the first time ever. They're going to try and limit temperature to only two degrees increase. And it seems, from reading your, your website, that uh, you, you sense that that's a load of old bollocks, Peter. The, uh, I don't think that was the word I used. No, it, it may not, be not the sense your website. I no, no. That was in the drugs panel, <laughs> Yes, it's complete rubbish. Yes. I mean, the policy is rubbish. You know, the science is not rubbish, but the policy is rubbish. When this Act came before us, the Climate Change Act, uh, there were only five of us who voted against it. I voted against it because I when the government produces a new piece of legislation, they have to produce an impact assessment weighing up the costs and benefits. And I went to the uh, vote office where you get these documents and they said, oh, no-one else has asked for this, to open the package. So I was the only member of Parliament who actually read it. And it said the potential costs of this process, all of which would, of this Act, all of which would fall on the British people, were twice the maximum benefits to the rest of the world. You don't do things where the costs exceed the benefits. You may then go off and work out a policy where they, you can create more benefits than costs, but it seems a no-brainer. You voted you, against you, it. You're obviously very against sort of subsidies for renewables and stuff like that, but then obviously uh, the current government for Hinkley Point, they, uh, the nuclear, they've now promised the Chinese that they're going to pay something like £92.50 per kilowatt hour, which is massively more than we, we pay at the moment. And it's going to be on the equivalent of what you could have got for renewables. You're saying, why, so why are we paying these nuclear subsidies when we could have got renewables like wind power? The advantage, of course, of things like wind power is nuclear waste, obviously, that we, the cost of putting that, burying it or whatever, it remains lethal for, for thousands of years. Wind, once you've used it, that, that just pisses off, doesn't it? You, can, you don't have to bury it in metal rods and you don't, 
you don't have to worry in a thousand years that it's going to come back and give you a terrible draft or uh, whatever. So. Uh, there are two problems. <laughs> a, a, wind is more expensive. The offshore wind, which is basic where we're going now, is about £120. But so onshore wind onshore is about £55, supposedly. Oh, no, no. no, but it, no well, that was the, 55 is the cost of electricity now made from gas. Uh, it's about but going up to but, seventy-five, but you're, and well, 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 these are the facts that I saw. I mean, you, you are right that onshore wind is cheaper than offshore wind and cheaper than nuclear. Except that if you have wind, you also have to have some power stations to provide electricity for when the wind doesn't blow. The other day, uh, in this cold sort of uh, cool spell we've had, wind was providing only one percent of our electricity. If, if the wind was blowing, it might be providing 10%. But you have to have all those power stations. And the only way you can do it without emitting CO2 is having nuclear power stations. I'm not too fussed about CO2. You, other people are, so they have to build these expensive nuclear power stations, even if you have wind. Renewable energy is a wonderful source. As Bri- Bristol, anybody who lives in Bristol well, knows the, Bri- the that, Bristol yeah. Poo bus. It is run on biomethane, isn't it? Yeah. There's a bus that goes from Bristol's Boston. great for poo. We had the Bristol stool chart, so we were the people who actually mapped out different types of poo. We have a poo bus. I think actually we're in denial. It's interesting as a culture, we're in denial about death. How many people here have planned their deaths? Well, exactly. If you don't plan your death, you're some hideous, over-medicalised death in hospital rather than the kind one at home. And we're in denial about death of the planet. I think the trouble is we're not going to be around. We can have this argument now. We're not going to see the consequences for our kids or our kids or our kids' kids' kids. I would like to question Peter more, but this is an opportunity now for the, for the audience to put some questions forward. So who, who has got some questions for, uh, before we come to the, the end? Who would any, anybody's got a question who would like to ask? Or a medical problem. <laughs> a warty growth, perhaps, you'd like to share with the group. Or any drugs they'd like to take with me. Or some hot air for people. Yes, great. I'd just like to know how you recycle your poo to the bus. Well, what, what it is is basically... You have a choice of spouts. I think it's a... <laughs> the, the Bristol Poo Bus, it runs on biomethane from the local sewage works. And, yeah, no, that's right. And so the, the people of Bristol, they can see this bus going through their city and they can all feel good about themselves. We did this. And they, they've nicknamed it the number two. So it, it, it all works very nicely. So, so now we have to decide, before we leave the Selective Action Group, whether we, uh, we want to do something before the next meeting. Phil, I believe there is a, a march of, in support of that junior is. doctors. Uh, yes, do you want to they, tell us all about it? Off this, yeah. Well, here it's we go. The, uh, Three it's people on the are 6th, excited. Isn't it? February the 6th, the meeting in London. Uh, hopefully there'll be one in Bristol as well, but I'll be. But yes, there'll be various meetings where people can gather it, and support. It is February the 6th. It meets at midday at Waterloo Place, huh. which is uh, near Pall Mall. So I'm going to be there. How many people in the audience are going to be there as well? Anybody been so excited? Oh, excellent. Look at that. Three, four, five, six. We have. Oh, we're into double figures, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. So all you need to do is we need to find. Not the workers, excellent. We need to find a pub near Waterloo to meet at midday on February the 6th. So we're only allowed 14 units now, maximum. So uh, we'll That's meet... a year. Is that a year? Is that all we're allowed? So uh, anybody know any good pubs near Waterloo? Waterloo Place, there is. I'm not, not Waterloo. If you meet at Waterloo, it's a long walk to Waterloo Place. There is one called, I believe, the Admiralty. The oh, Admiralty, which okay. is opposite, people nodding. Yeah, it's near, uh, near Trafalgar Square. So I will be in there at 12 o'clock on February the 6th. If people want to come along and join, and we will then go along and we will march in support of the junior doctors. And uh, I think it's the, uh, the Six Nations after that, so we can, <laughs> we, we can maybe go and, go and find a rug. 
Yeah, it's a great sport. I know everybody likes it, but there are very few sports are there where before you actually go out on the field, you have to gaffer tape your own ears to your head. So, <laughs> so for those people listening on the podcast, if there's anything you'd like us to do as a group, please let me know. AndyParsons.co.uk. You can also ask questions of any of the guests. I should let you know that the guests next month, February the 29th, we have uh, Margaret Hodge, MP, ex-chair uh, of the... Uh, the sort of uh, financial uh, Public committee. Accounts committee. Public, Public accounts. accounts committee. Thank you very much for help from the panel there. Um, we also have the new president of the British United Humanist States. Association. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Donald Trump, I was going to say that. Really <laughs> God, help us. New president of the United States, Donald Trump, allowed in for one night only to the country. <laughs> to a selectivist meeting. Yeah. That'd, be, that'd be a coup. Uh, and... Um, so, yeah, Shabby Corsandy will be here, and we've also got Philip Collins, excellent columnist from The Times. So that's... Um, Ex-speechwriter to Tony Blair. That's right, ex-speechwriter to Tony Blair. So he, he, he will be it's here. So any questions for any of them, please go to the website let me know. It's, it's all bad form to repeat praise, um, so I won't do that, but I would like to thank some people who've got in contact. In particular, Weird Beard, Satnav Legend, Pain O'J, Sandrada, Only the Bassist, and David Neal one of the more traditional listeners, David. So, so thank you very much. Also, thanks to Ollie and Tom for providing a podcast theme tune. So all it remains for me to do, ladies and gentlemen, before we, uh, we say thank you very much to our guest tonight, is to go over to our secretary, Liz, if you could uh, wait for the microphone to come over and recap what you have heard this evening. Here we go. This is Liz, Liz's opportunity now. I mean, I've written pages and pages and pages. Wow. So okay, well, maybe just give us the top line of each one. <laughs> she's, uh, she's on recreational amphetamines, that's why she's written so much. Recreational amphetamines, I like that. I did see a nip off and have a, quick, have a quick look in Phil's bag halfway through the show, so just, just give us a little snippet. You, you've got to basically say something and then go, I resign, and that's your job done. This. <laughs> I've basically divided the, the three... Um, you just like writing, don't you? That's do all that's like happened. I've recently given up work, so I'm now back into the writing mode. So, um, yes, I've gone through what Phil said about the junior doctors... And what Deborah said about legalising drugs, and what Pete said about global warming. I mean, that has been warming. incredibly illuminating. But, you know, <laughs> we, we are all the wiser now. Uh, what, what, thank you very much for that, Liz. That is, that is a wonderful contribution. That Let's give a round of applause for Liz. Keep, keep that up. I resign. Keep, keep that applause going, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. I think they've been a great panel. So many thanks to you for coming, and please give a big round of applause. I got in trouble last time because I didn't repeat their names, so please give a big round of applause. Peter Lilly MP, Deborah Orr, Dr Phil Hammond. Thank you very much, and good night. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.